You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. See you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. If we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie, one of the pastor elders of our church. Uh, excited to open the scriptures with you this morning, as we do each and every Sunday. As we move deeper into the month of, of January, all of us, the first month of this new calendar year, already almost in the books, which is kind of crazy to think. Uh, it's been said that it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. Maybe you've heard that before, though there are uh, plenty of researchers who would disagree with that notion, as would a, a great many of us who woke up on this 22nd day of the new year already feeling as though our New Year's resolutions have been unrealized yet again, which is you know, not to pick on this idea of establishing resolutions as a principle or uh, this idea of recommitting ourselves to, you know, old re- uh, resolutions unrealized. Uh, after all, and I mentioned this for the last several weeks, the language of resoluteness is right there in the scriptures. One example I've offered up throughout this series being the life and writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 Verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, not bec- or because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, there's the language, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If the Apostle Paul was anything, he was resolute, he was determined, he was unwavering. But but with that, Paul also seemed to understand that God-glorifying change oftentimes comes progressively over the course of time. It's slow and, and grueling oftentimes. I was reminded of that when I got in my car this morning and got hit with a burst of A.C., Because the last time I was in my car, it was 80 degrees, right? We keep going back and forth, and I can't seem to remember to preemptively prepare for the next shift. It's like riding a rodeo bull, whatever the weather version of that is. And my anger swelled up within me. And and yet again, I was reminded that we call this thing progressive sanctification, not instantaneous sanctification, for a reason. Paul says, as we... Behold the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In the words of Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're after as a church. We're in it for the long game, for God's glory, for our joy, for our good, which goes against the grain of our culture. We live in a microwave society today. We want it instantaneously. This is why we've committed the month of January to camping out on a number of uh, core convictions or values that we hold as a church with the hope and aim that we would be determined in our commitment to these values over the course of time. For some, maybe hearing these things for the very first time. For others, a reminder of the direction in which our long obedience is headed. 
as both disciples and pilgrims, by the way. Disciples always learning, pilgrims always moving, committed to this rugged journey of discipleship that finds its destination in the very presence of our God. And so with that, I invite you to open up, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 133. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You're welcome to use that Bible during our time together. Please take that Bible home with you if you don't own a Bible as the church's gift to you. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for our time in the scriptures and we'll dive in together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son for decreeing this great plan of redemption that Christ would accomplish in stepping into the slums of our broken world, that we might be rescued into a forever family, into a community of redeemed brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God because of Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you would awaken our minds and our hearts as a time, result of our time in your word this morning. Thank you for the means of grace that the preaching of your word is. Thank you for the honor and privilege that I get to do this for your people. And two, with that, that these things happen with your people. I pray that as one of your people, as those who stand among all of us who gather in this place, that that this would be for me too, that you would give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach, Lord. And that as a result of our time in your word this morning, uh, that, that we would walk away melted, convicted, comforted, encouraged, fortified, whatever you have for us, Lord. You meet us where, where we are by your grace. And may it be for your glory and your glory alone and our good and joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So if I could sum up the first three weeks of, of this series, we began with a, a reminder on New Year's Day that, that we must immerse ourselves in the scriptures if we have any hope of fighting the good fight of faith, of people committed to continuing in the sacred writings. That was week one. The, the following week, reminding us that we too must be a people who call the truth therein to mind when our hearts are most in danger of drifting from what we profess to believe, when the sorrow is greatest, when the Darkness is darkest. Last week, week three of the series, reminding us that it's possible to be well-versed in the scriptures absent of delight in the Lord, that it's possible to be incredibly competent of how to wield the truth therein, the sacred writings, in those moments when the sorrow is greatest, the darkness is darkest, absent of delight in the Lord. For these things to become a rote exercise, a spiritual discipline that's all about duty without any place for delight in it all. And with that, going back to last week, an exhortation to keep fighting for happiness in the Lord, to keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, delighting him simply for, for who he is and the salvation that's ours in Jesus, and two, delighting in him by enjoying the many everyday expressions of his kindness and grace to us. This morning, a reminder that God means for us to embrace all of these things and more not just individually, but communally, as a family, in a spirit of God-glorifying unity 
and love as God's redeemed, bound together under the one and same blood of Jesus Christ. It's a sermon, I think many of you would agree with me here, for which the world has not been without need since the ruinous fall of our first parents back in the garden. I mean, after all, Genesis 4, the very next chapter, one of the first stories to take place east of Eden, outside of the garden, it's a tragic and violent story of Cain and Abel. Right, the first sibling story in all of scripture, a story ending in murder. It cannot get worse than that. Followed by stories like those of Isaac and, and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Israel and Judah, the church in Corinth. Right, and the story goes on. Add to that the annals of church history with her many stories of dissension and division, the number of church splits too vast for us to count at this point. Oftentimes, if we're honest, spun in some sort of like positive light so that the wounds of relational fracturing is, is buried. Right? They're ignored. And with that, the many churches that, that haven't split but are filled with disunity and, and discord. It's all around us. To, to make matters worse, we live in a day, you and I, in which privatized Christianity is celebrated. It's kind of sort of rugged uh, spiritual individualism that, that declares, give me Jesus the bridegroom, but not the church his bride. So that we've lost the sense of community that ancient Israel knew all too well. And with that, this sort of waning appreciation and love for the corporate psalms. The individual ones, yes and amen. We can sit with those in our times of devotion, but, but the corporate ones with uh, the we's and us's and ours, we maybe struggle with a little bit more. In the, the dark, uh, poetic comedy of one writer reflecting the, this sad reality, he says, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. Right? But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Psalm 133, it's a, it's a wisdom psalm that celebrates the blessing of, of unity, the goodness and pleasure that the, the, the Lord delights to, to pour out, to shower upon those who live in God-glorifying, joyful union with each other, who fight for that. If you pick up in verse 1, David says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That language of brothers dwelling together, it can be traced back to the, the earliest chapters of the Bible along with those many stories of relational di dissension, division, and, and even violence. The book of Genesis describing a, a particular geographical region which wasn't conducive to family members living in close proximity with something of a parallel in the book of Deuteronomy where it describes extended family living near one another, dwelling together in unity, giving room for a flesh and blood application of, of Psalm 133 on the one hand, the goodness and delightfulness of a unified flesh and blood family. Something that I'm going to go out on a limb here, actually not, and, and, and say that I would venture to guess surely resonates with with many of us having just come out of the holiday season with its many familial highs and, and lows. That's not too far removed from the rear view mirror. And yet, the picture that Psalm 133 paints is, is one that captures something more. Right? A sibling relationship that, that runs deeper than a shared bloodline. The psalmist broadening the, the language and imagery here in verse 1 to include that of a covenant family. 
a spiritual togetherness and unified dwelling in the presence of the Lord. You see it in in the lyrics of the preceding psalm, Psalm 132, verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place, us. Let us worship at his footstool. The psalmist there painting a, a picture in which dwelling together is something that takes place in the presence of God. Or you see it elsewhere in the psalm, Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, very famous passage of scripture. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Pair that with Psalm 84, verse 4, this language of dwelling in God's presence, which says, blessed are those, there's the plural language, who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Again, it's this spiritual togetherness and unified dwelling in the presence of the Lord as recipients of his redemptive grace. Positioned in that togetherness under the waterfall of God's blessing, a God who delights to pour out his goodness and his pleasure, verse 1, on those who dwell in joyful, worshipful union with one another. Verse 2, he goes on to say, David does, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Here the the psalmist provides us with the the imagery of the Old Testament priesthood, the the first of two illustrations in this psalm describing the blessing of the Lord, the ordination of Aaron and his descendants, the pouring out of anointing oil and the consecration of the priests, setting them apart as holy, going back to Exodus chapters 29 and 30. A fragrant oil made of cinnamon and sweet cane make a really nice candle representing the, the presence and blessing of God's Spirit. As we see in, in moments of divine commissioning elsewhere in the Bible, for example, in the anointing of David as king, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. As many of you know, we talk about this a lot as a church. The, the priesthood was the institution by which the Lord assured his people of forgiveness and blessing, drawing his covenant people together into his presence with the priest acting as, as the mediator of God's blessing to his people so that the blessing could no more be contained or confined than the anointing oil could stop from running down the priest's head and onto his beard and onto his robe. That's what unity in the Lord is like. God's fragrant blessing flowing down like the anointing oil of the priesthood with its cinnamon, with its sweet cane. And it's a fragrance that that the world cannot ignore. We'll get there next week as we talk about the core conviction of evangelism and closing out this series and not becoming inward focused so much that we become a holy huddle. But for today... You have this imagery of God's people set apart as a priesthood of believers living in the gladness of covenant unity. The Lord Jesus himself, our great high priest, in whom we can be assured of God's forgiveness and blessing, through whom we can know God's anointing, the blessing and presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit set apart. As if that weren't enough, to fan into flame a desire in the hearts of God's people to dwell in unity. 
David goes on to say in verse 3, this unity, this dwelling in unity of, of brothers and sisters, the people of God, God's redeemed. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Right here, David provides us with a second illustration, again, beautifully and, and winsomely describing the blessing of the Lord. Mount Hermon, it's a, it's a snow-covered mountain. Sits roughly 100 miles to the north of Zion. It's the highest mountain in Israel. So that you have this picture of the clouds gathering the dew of, of Mount Hermon and dropping it on the mountain, mountain of Zion. Dew or mist signifying freshness. The awakening and renewal of the morning like God's mercies. Vital to the fertility and flourishing of the land. The kind of language we see in uh, Isaac's blessing of Jacob, Genesis chapter 27, verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 28. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop like dew. Or drop down dew, I should say. Or elsewhere, in the book of Hosea, the Lord declares, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Describing a stability, the trees of Lebanon. Describing springtime bloom, the blossom of the lily. That too is what unity in the Lord is like. God's blessing falling down like the dew of heaven falling on the, the tallest of mountains in the rural north, Mount Hermon, and the smallest of mountains in the urban south, Mount Zion. God creates unity in the midst of diversity. It goes all the way back to the Trinity, by the way, that principle. Brought together in the language and imagery of Psalm 133, positioned God's people in that togetherness under the waterfall of the Lord's blessing bearing a harvest of fruitfulness for God's glory and by God's grace. God's people in God's place under God's rule in unity and companionship. Expecting the Lord to, to daily renew like the dew that falls from the night sky. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes it. He says, the, the oil flowing down Aaron's beard communicates warm priestly relationship. The dew descending down Hermon's slopes communicates fresh and expectant newness. Oil and dew, the two things that make life together delightful. Life abundant. Life forevermore, going back to verse 3 of this morning's psalm. Harkens back to the, the closing lyrics of the previous psalm, Psalm 132, the blessings to come in the heavenly Zion. This is forward looking, the stability of God's forever people, like the trees of Lebanon with their forever king in their forever kingdom. A place where dissension and, and division and discord shall be no more. No more of that garbage. And unity will forever be the song on our lips and the song of our hearts. That's what's coming, church. God means for the lyrics of this, this most beautiful and, and compelling and winsome of songs to fan into flame a longing in our hearts for a taste of that right now. 
that kind of unity now. In one sense, showing us something of our deep need, this psalm does, as it speaks three different times of the blessing descending. Just as we see the curtain split from top to bottom when Jesus dies, because this must ultimately come from God to man, not from man to God. The oil running down, the dew falling. It's God who ultimately sends the blessing down. The oil and dew that make life together delightful. And it's we who receive it by his grace as we pray for and dwell with one another in unity. There's a human responsibility aspect of this as well. As Alec Motyer says in his commentary on this psalm, he says, if we want the blessing, look to the unity The blessing is heavenly and miraculous. Only the Lord can command it. According to his word, the blessing runs down to a particular stated place, namely the place where brethren come together and in unity. Let me stop there because there are a lot of people who identify as brothers and sisters in Christ who come together often. It's more than that. He says, and in unity. He goes on to say, we should pray for that. We should cultivate it. We should practice it. And we should refuse to do, say, or anything that threatens it. And of course, its first and primary focus is the local church to which you and I belong. It's easy to do the church universal thing. It's much harder to do the church local thing, the grit and grime of what it is to walk in a a localized expression of the bride of Christ in the everyday. Such a psalm with its imagery and its language, it invites us all, myself included, to sit with a question this morning. In in what way or ways might the kindness of the Lord be, be leading us to repentance, you and I, as it pertains to things related to dissension and division and, and discord within the body? Where are we stirring that up? knowing that such things grieve the Holy Spirit, not only driving away the blessing that would otherwise be ours as described here in Psalm 133, but two, harming our witness in the midst of this dark and divisive world. The world doesn't need our help there. But more than that, in addition to that, where do you and I see opportunities to deepen relationships within the church, to foster deeper spiritual togetherness and unified dwelling in the presence of our great God and Savior? You don't need me to remind you that the fulfillment of the priestly rituals and laws has come. Jesus, our mediator, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Us, plural, Bound together again in unity by the blood that that covers us all. Like oil running down the beard of Aaron. Like dew falling on the mountains of Zion. That if I could trace that into the New Testament fulfillment. That Jesus is the head of the church. Down which the fragrant oil of God's grace flows to the body. And that fragrant oil of God's grace breaks down the sinful walls in our hearts over time. Progressively bringing us to dwell together in deeper unity in him. Right? Anything else would be undeniably out of step with where this story's headed. I've shared this quote before. It probably won't be the last time I share it. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, in describing the age to come, the eternity of heaven, 
He says, Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and altogether blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. We get to look forward to that on the one hand. And we get to practice for that sweet symphony now. As we bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4. Eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Whatever that looks like. Right? Jesus himself, he prayed to the Father that it would be so. Jesus prayed this prayer for, the, for his people. John chapter 17 verse 21. Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a sermon series on its own, that one verse. The, the wondrous intra-Trinitarian doctrine and beauty to be unpacked there and what it means that we've been invited into that dance. I don't have time this morning. Suffice it to say is that, that my prayer for us as a church is that we would, we would know the sweetness of, of unity, like the anointing oil of the priesthood with its cinnamon and sweet cane, that we, the church, would be that kind of scented candle to one another and everybody around us. Again, we'll get into that next week, the evangelistic uh, implications of all of that, that we would know the refreshment of unity, like the morning dew that falls on the ground with this expectant newness, that our mercies for each other every day would be new. How does it happen? It happens as we steep in the wondrous beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's redemptive grace again flowing down, binding us together under the one and same blood of Jesus. I love what we're about to do. In just a moment, if you... I came in after we began the first song. You, you will have missed this, but uh, those first few songs that we sang and, and what we're about to, to dive into in the song of the church involves a, a lot of we's and us's and ours in the lyrics. Not that there's anything wrong with the I and me and my language of the individual psalms and the song of the church, but we've been intentional to try to pair the sung word with the preach word this morning. Not that we would sing about community, songs about community, but that we would sing songs that identify us as a community, those plural pronouns. We're about to do that. And I just encourage you to, to sit with that. Every time you hear the word our or we or us in these songs, think about the implications of what we just sat with in Psalm 133. With that, we get to participate in the Lord's Supper as a, a means of God's grace to us, his kindness to us. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to talk about that, I'll be at the back of the auditorium most of the rest of this service. We'd love to get together sometime in the coming weeks if, if that would be helpful of blessing and benefit. If you are a Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood there are communion stations on either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free station in the back of the auditorium. Uh, anytime over the course of these next couple songs, you're welcome to, uh, to go and, and receive those elements. And as you do, uh, I, I would just encourage you there, again, to be reminded of that New Testament language of Christ the head and we the, the body 
Christ the head down which the fragrant oil of God's grace flows to us, to us, to us. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.